Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The U.S. says that Iran is not trying to build a nuclear weapon. So the Pentagon's new nuclear posture review, which was released last week, says that the U.S. believes Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapon. But Biden administration officials are still threatening military action against Iran to prevent it from acquiring one, from acquiring a nuclear bomb. So this uh, nuclear posture review, uh, it says, quote, Iran does not today possess a nuclear weapon, and we currently believe it is not pursuing one, end quote. So this is a document put together by the Pentagon. And it was released alongside the National Defense Strategy, which I went over a bit last week, that names China as the top threat facing the U.S. And the NDS, the National Defense Strategy, it also acknowledges that Iran has not made a decision to build a nuclear bomb. It reads, quote, Iran is taking actions that would improve its ability to produce a nuclear weapon should it make the decision to do so, end quote. So despite the Pentagon's conclusion, President Biden's special envoy for Iran, Robert Malley, said this week that the U.S. would use military action as a last resort to prevent Iran from acquiring a bomb. He said, quote, we will use other tools and in last resort, a military option if necessary to stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, end quote. And he also said, as I covered uh, that the U.S. was not going to waste its time, as he put it, on negotiations with Iran to revive the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA, even though these documents, the National Posture Review, recognizes the that the agreement, the JCPOA, puts strict constraints on Iran's nuclear program. So the Nuclear Posture Review says that Iranian nuclear activity that the JCPOA previously constrained is, quote, of great concern as they are applicable to a nuclear weapons program, end quote. So it recognizes that the JCPOA, which has very strict limits, it puts Iran's nuclear program, <clears throat> just uh, makes it so they could only enrich uranium up to, I believe it's like 3.7%, which is very low. Weapons grade is 90%. Um, and they have to ship off their uh, enriched uranium. Um, and after the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA in 2018, that lifted Iran's obligation to, to be in these strict limits. So Iran waited a year before they took any action. They gave the Europeans a chance to offset the sanctions, or I guess they're hoping maybe that the, the, the Trump administration reimposed. They were hoping those sanctions would be reversed. So anyway, they waited a year, and then they started pretty slowly increasing their nuclear activity. And in more recent years, Iran has increased uranium enrichment in response to Israeli covert attacks and assassinations. Operations that the U.S. tacitly endorses because they never condemn them, and it's their friends Israel that are, that are conducting them. So it is just really ridiculous that the, the U.S., here they are threatening military action, keeping all these sanctions on Iran, and and is backing Israel's covert operations over, and they don't even think that they've made the decision to make a nuclear weapon. So what's what's this all for? Um, and I have to give credit to Ted Snyder who uh, found this because I didn't read this whole document, um, and he's going to have a piece on it 
this week, I believe. But uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it, it just really shows because uh, this is the official line. I mean, the CIA director, William Burns, he said last year, you know, the same thing that Iran's not trying to make a nuclear weapon. That they go to all these lengths and all this propaganda that you see uh, trying to convince you of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really the best way, you know, if you want to, if you're worried about Iran's nuclear program, the nuclear deal is the best way to to ease those concerns, but the U.S. has no interest in lifting sanctions on Iran. All right, the next one, another Iran story. Uh, they're sending a delegation to Vienna for talks with the IAEA, the U.N. nuclear watchdog. Um, and this is over the IAEA's investigation into traces of uranium at undeclared Iranian nuclear sites. Iran's foreign minister said that they're going to send the delegation in the coming days uh, in order to strengthen cooperation with the IAEA. So the IAEA's probe into these uranium traces, um, it's been open for years, and there's no proliferation risk, but they, they don't want to drop it, and they haven't been satisfied with Iran's explanations. They've presented them with documents and things, but they're not happy with it. Iranian officials have insisted that they've explained the situation well enough, and some have suggested that the evidence was planted by Israel, um, which who knows, but it is important to point out that Israel has infiltrated Iran's nuclear program. I believe one of the attacks at the Natanz nuclear facility was um, you, they used, according to the Mossad, according to Israeli media, they used there was explosives kind of in the structure, some of the structures that were built that were planted during the construction that they, that they blew up. Um, so it does look like they can, they can really infiltrate Iranian nuclear facilities. Um, but this issue was brought up during the negotiations between the U S and Iran, the, the latest rounds of talks that, that were indirect talks, but they, uh, they've been stalled since the beginning of September. But Iran was saying uh, that they, they couldn't revive the JCPOA without settling this IAEA investigation. But it wasn't clear if that was a demand that they made to the U.S. as part of uh, a condition to revive the JCPOA. That, that it was something they were saying publicly. Um, but again, you know, the, the, those talks are dead. And especially with the rhetoric that's been coming out of the Biden administration, um, it doesn't seem like anything. there's going to be any progress on that front anytime soon. Uh, all right, so the next one here, the U.S. says that it sees no indication Russia is preparing to use a nuclear weapon. So the Biden administration said this on Wednesday, and it was after a media report claimed that Russian officials were discussing the use of tactical nuclear weapons. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, quote, we continue to monitor this as best we can, and we see no indications that Russia is making preparations for such use, end quote. So citing unnamed U.S. officials, the New York Times reported that senior Russian officials recently discussed when and how to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Other uh, report hasn't been confirmed, and Kirby declined to comment on the report. He didn't confirm confirm the contents of it. And responding to the report, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that Western media is, quote, deliberately pumping up the topic of the use of nuclear weapons, end quote. And he said the report was uh, very irresponsible. Uh, so if the report is true, who really knows? Um, again, it's just said that 
Russian officials were discussing when and how to use tactical nuclear weapons. But it is typical of officials in nuclear armed states to discuss the potential use of the weapons and even rehearse dropping them as both NATO and Russia recently conducted um, nuclear war games. And Putin said last week that he has no plans to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And that came after earlier warnings from him. Uh, He said that Russia could use all the weapons at its disposal to defend its territorial integrity. And other Russian officials made clear that that includes nuclear weapons and applies to the territory that Moscow recently annexed. Russian officials insist that Putin's warnings fall within Moscow's military doctrine. But the warning is significant because Russia has annexed that territory that it controls, meaning that it now considers Kiev's counteroffensives as attacks on Russian territory. Uh, Kirby said, the National Security Council spokesman, he said that the U.S. was still concerned with the risk of Russia using a nuclear weapon. But that concern has not led to a push for diplomacy. Um, At least publicly, we haven't seen any indication that the U.S. is pushing for talks. In fact, they've been saying that they're not, um, while Russia has repeatedly stated that they are open for negotiations, willing to negotiate. But Ukraine, they're not interested. Their goal, they're saying, is to drive Russia out of all the territory it controls, including Crimea and the U.S., um, you know, they would need to be pushed, leaned on hard by the U.S. to negotiate, it seems like. Uh, and it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. And and people, even the slightest, you know, call for that in Washington, as we saw with that letter that those progressive Democrats sent Biden, that was very, very mildly, meekly called for the U.S. to negotiate with Russia was retracted, which is just really unbelievable. All right, the next one here, both Sweden and Finland will not rule out hosting NATO nuclear weapons. So uh, I covered recently that Finland said they were, were would not rule out hosting nuclear weapons if they join NATO, but Sweden is saying the same thing too. Um, and this was uh, said by both of their prime ministers who held a joint press conference in Helsinki on Tuesday. So when asked if Finland would allow nuclear weapons, uh, Finnish Prime Minister Marin said that she did not want to close any doors and that there should not be any preconditions to Finland joining NATO. So Kristersson, who is the new Swedish Prime Minister, uh, he said Sweden and Finland will act jointly on the issue and that the two countries should embrace all of NATO's capabilities. Um, And separately, the commander of Sweden's armed forces also said that Stockholm should not set any preconditions before joining NATO. So currently, NATO has no nuclear weapons deployed in any countries that have joined the alliance since the end of the Cold War. And it's unlikely that they would be placed in Sweden and Finland in the near future if they join the alliance. But the policy could always change. And Poland has said that it's looking to host U.S. nukes and has said that it's in discussions with Washington on the on the matter. So um, placing nuclear weapons in Finland would be just a huge provocation toward Moscow as it shares an over 800-mile border. Finland shares an over 800-mile border with Russia. Uh, and Putin has said that he does not view Finland and Sweden joining NATO as a threat, but he warned he would respond to the expansion of the military alliance's infrastructure in the region. And the reason why Russian officials have said that 
you know, uh, when Finland and Sweden were first entertaining the idea of joining NATO, Russia was really warning against it. Uh, but then when it actually happened, it kind of toned it down a little bit, saying that they would respond to the NATO expansion of NATO infrastructure. Um, but and the reason why they said is because they don't have territorial disputes with Finland, even though they border Finland like they border Ukraine. It's just not as sensitive as a country for Russia um, to join NATO as Ukraine or Georgia is. Um, but Sweden and Finland's NATO bids, they've been approved by 28 out of 30 members with only Hungary and Turkey holding out. And Turkey is warning that they could still block them from joining if they don't fulfill a deal that they signed. Um, but I want to take the moment, this moment to mention our great sponsor, the book, How the West Brought War to Ukraine by Benjamin Ablo, which is a great summary of the uh, steps that the U.S. and NATO took after the Cold War that provoked the war that we're seeing today, uh, played a major role in provoking it. And he uh, wrote to me, Mr. Ablo, and said, told me something pretty cool that his book is being, uh, I have to find his email, um, is being reprinted by a Swedish, what did he say? A special German edition of the book uh, was published last week by the largest Swiss news weekly, uh, Die Weltwoche, which translates to the World Week. So they published and distributed 40,000 copies of this book in print and shrink wrap them with their regular weekly magazine and they're making pdfs uh free for download online so uh that's you know in german uh so it's pretty great that they're they're sending this out to so many people uh to get this message out of how the west uh did provoke this war uh you know it's history that they want us to forget you know of course ablo he's not justifying russia's invasion and Neither am I, but it's just really important, especially as an American or if you know you're a West a European. It's really important to know our government's role in provoking this war. And um, currently, it seems like it's pretty clear that they they wanted to prolong it in the earlier days when peace talks seemed viable. They were uh, doing everything they could to scuttle them. Uh, but you could purchase the book at the link in the show notes. The hard copy is only ten bucks. It's a short read. And you could also get the Kindle version and an audiobook is on the way. Um, so how the West brought war to Ukraine. All right. So back to the news here. The, um, the next one. Uh, oh, Russia. This is some good news. I, Russia has rejoined the Ukraine grain deal after Turkey's mediation. So Russia on Wednesday, they agreed to rejoin the deal that has allowed grain shipments to leave Ukraine's Black Sea ports after successful mediation from Turkey. Erdogan, the Turkish president, announced that grain shipments resumed out of safe corridors set up by the agreement at 12 p.m. Moscow time on Wednesday. So Erdogan spoke with Putin about the agreement on Tuesday, and Russia's defense minister notified his Turkish counterpart the following day that they're going to resume participation. Russia said that it suspended its participation in response to a weekend drone attack on its Black Sea fleet in Crimea. It blamed the attack on Ukraine and claimed that some of the drones traveled through the safe corridors to launch the attack. Russian officials said they agreed to resume participation in the deal after receiving guarantees from Ukraine that they would not use these corridors to launch attacks. 
Russia's short pause of the deal did not have much impact on the grain shipments. Vessels were still moving out of Ukraine on Monday and Tuesday, so they didn't try to blockade the ports or anything. And Putin warned uh, that Russia could suspend its participation again if Ukraine does not live up to its guarantees. And now this deal is due to expire on November 19th. And Russia has warned that it may not extend the agreement. As part of the deal, which was signed in July, Russia was given assurances that there would be steps to facilitate the export of Russian agricultural products. But Moscow says that has not happened. So, I mean, this just goes to show Turkey right after Russia. I mean, you just kind of look at, compare what Turkey's doing, you know, to what the U.S. is doing. Russia pulls out of this deal. All the U.S. does is say, you know, just release all these statements accusing them of all sorts of things. And what Turkey does is they get on the phone right away and say, how can we salvage this? Um, so, and they did, they did salvage it. And Russia says that they appreciate Turkey's neutrality. Uh, so it is interesting Turkey's role here. I mean, there's plenty of things to criticize Erdogan about, but uh, in, you know, just that at NATO, they're kind of the rogue NATO country um, in the sense in, in, in a bad sense, in, in some aspects that they're, uh, they attack Iraq and Syria a lot. But in this sense, it, it's, it's good that they're at least one NATO country is really pushing for diplomacy here. Uh, okay, the next one. Uh, oh, we just have one up about the elections in Israel. Looks like uh, final votes have been tallied. It looks like Netanyahu is going to retake power by mid-November. So Netanyahu is coming back. And he seems to be forming a coalition with some very extremist uh, uh, right-wing politicians in Israel. And there's been some talk, some reports that the U.S., if certain people are in the coalition, um, that they that the U.S. might not want to work with them, uh, which is interesting. But I'm sure Netanyahu's going to try to make the Americans happy. Um, and, you know, we have, we run, we run stuff from Israeli media on Israeli elections. Uh, you know, this is the times of Israel. They're not good on a lot of things, but when it comes to Israeli politics, I uh, usually get the best information from them and other Israeli media. Uh, so if you want to check out the details there, we have all, a lot of stuff posted about that. Um, the next one here, more tensions on the Korean Peninsula. This is from Kyle Anselon at the Libertarian Institute. So North Korea reacted pretty strongly to the U.S. and South Korea's major war games that they've been holding. Uh, Pyongyang carried out large-scale military exercises as Washington and Seoul conducted record-setting aerial war games. North Korea launched 23 missiles and fired over 100 artillery rounds into the sea. Um, and I believe that was on Wednesday. And they launched additional missiles on Thursday. So the U.S. and South Korea, they kicked off their Vigilant Storm 23 aerial war games this week. The military drills involve a record 240 aircraft. So the most, it's the largest ever iteration of these drills. And of course, North Korea denounced the exercises and pledged to react. And they began their response by firing 17 missiles on Wednesday morning. Later in the day, they launched an additional six. The total of 23 launches in a single day is a record for Pyongyang. And Seoul reported that the missiles were short range and some flew very close to South Korean territory. And then they, North Korea also fired over 100 artillery, artillery, round, sorry, <laughs> artillery rounds near the maritime buffer zone. Um, so 
South Korea is saying these are unprecedented uh, missile launches, artillery launches. So it's just not good. Um, and again, there's more on Thursday. So we could see even more as the day goes on. Uh, just so many uh, tit-for-tat escalations and drills between the two Koreas and the Biden administration shows so not, shows no sign in changing its approach. Okay, so the next one here, this is from the South China Morning Post. China has no no time frame for Taiwan reunification, even if the U.S. says so. So this is a response to all the warnings from the U.S. that China is uh, trying to is going to try to take Taiwan quicker than they originally expected. Um, so this is Jin Quan, and what he's a Chinese diplomat that's based in Washington. Uh, he said, quote, we don't want to use force, but we should have the capability to deter and prevent the worst case scenario of Taiwan independence, end quote. So, sorry. Uh, oh, he's a, so he's a minister at China's embassy in Washington. And he said, you know, basically, we don't have a timetable. And he's repeating uh, what Xi Jinping recently reiterated. China's stance is that they seek peaceful what they call reunification, but they don't rule out the use of force. He said, quote, some people are talking about five years, 10 years, 2035, 2049. I don't think so. We want to get united as soon as possible, but we don't have any timeline, end quote. Um, again, he's just saying that he reiterates again, they don't want to use force. So China, you know, the U.S. has big plans for Taiwan, um, and what the U.S. does, what China does is, is going to depend on what the U.S. does. If the U.S. goes through with these plans to give them billions in military aid that they have, that's going to cause China to react in a big way. Um, and a full-scale invasion is pretty unlikely, but there's other steps that they could take, such as the blockade, um, you know, and they could do that pretty quickly, I think. They showed that in their recent military drills. Okay, let's see. The next one here, another one from... Um, from Kyle and Will Porter at the Libertarian Institute. This is interesting. Uh, the Pentagon praises Elon Musk and the Treasury Department targets him with an investigation. So America's top military officer, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, he praised SpaceX CEO Elon Musk by name at an, evo- at an event hosted by Space Force. And uh, the quote here from Millie, this was a, a Space Force event. It hosted other industry executives. But uh, Millie mentioned uh, Musk by name, and he was the only CEO mentioned by name. Millie said, quote, what he symbolizes in reality is the combination of the civil and military cooperation and teamwork that makes the United States the most powerful country in space. Uh, end quote. So SpaceX has a lot of contracts as with the Pentagon uh, in space with satellites. And um, they've also helped out uh, supporting the war in Ukraine by providing uh, these Starlink terminals that allow Ukrainian forces to access the internet, internet virtually anywhere. Um, and from what I understand, they're, they're really using them in, in their battles and stuff. Um, so... They, uh, there's also, you know, 
so he's getting praise from Millie in one hand, and he's also coming under scrutiny over his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. The Biden administration does not seem happy about it. On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported that the Treasury Department officials are seeking the authority to launch a probe into the acquisition, as well as his alleged ties to foreign governments and investors. Um, so we'll see where that goes. You know, he's upsetting a lot of people with his Twitter purchase. It's definitely interesting. Uh, I think it could be definitely a big improvement uh, from what Twitter has been, but it is also important to point out his uh, contracts with the Pentagon and stuff. All right. Um, so the next one, there's actually some, this is good, good news. It seems like very good news that Ethiopia uh, and Tigray, Ethiopia's government and Tigrayan forces have agreed to end the two-year war. So the parties in the conflict in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray have agreed on a permanent cessation of hostilities, the African Union announced on Wednesday. Um, so when I first saw this, I just thought it was like a ceasefire, you know, maybe temporary, but they're saying they're agreeing to end the war. And this is a war that I really don't know enough about. I should really um, f- uh, look into it more and, and you know, I wish I could have followed it more closely, but there's just so much other stuff that's been going on. Um, but this this is good. Uh, the The war broke out in November 2020, and there's been it's been pretty brutal. It seems like so. Hopefully this sticks. Um, but that's it for the news for today. We have a lot of good viewpoints as always. We have a good original from Eric Sammons, and we link to uh, one from Branko March Teach at Jacobin about. Um, the hawkish discourse of today, comparing it to the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's really good, uh, March Teach, on foreign policy. Uh, he's been really good on on the current war. And, and we link to Daniel Larison's Substack. He has a great one about the Saudis. Um, and another one, where is this, Kit Clarenberg? I think he writes for the Gray Zone, but everything is slow right now. Uh, but it's about Israel's secret illegal biological war against the Arabs, which more detail about that was recently revealed about the, the Nakba. Oh, this is the cradle. Okay. Um, so it exposes uh, biological warfare against the Arabs during the 1948 Nakba, uh, which is a lot of interesting stuff there. And then a good spotlight from Ted Galen Carpenter, who's also a columnist for us, but that's it for me for today. Um, I will uh, catch you tomorrow with more news. Uh, again, you could always support us, antiwar.com slash donate. Um, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Odyssey Rumble. If you want to watch the video, you could also download the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but I will talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.